Welcome to Record Crimes. In each episode, we'll be getting into anything from copyright legal battles, crimes committed by people in the music industry, and and everything everything in between. People in the music industry? Doing illegal things? Really? That couldn't have been a more better intro. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hello. Um, it's a little weird talking to an audience that isn't there, I even know. though I think we're just used to being said audience when we listen to our other podcast, that it's a little weird. I'm like, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> I know, hearing my voice, because I'm always behind the scenes. I just hear it whenever I record you. Dude, when I record vocals, listening back to them, like, especially, like, soloing, like, the track and just, like, only myself, hatred, true hatred. Like, I can get behind this like, as well. Like, editing this not is a vocalist. not going to be fun. <laughs> like, I, no. <laughs> okay, okay, well, welcome Hi. to our podcast. Oh, yeah. This is something that Liz and I, Same we team. haven't even introduced Who ourselves. You? Who are you? Off to a great start. Okay, Tell well, me. I'm Clarice Barbier. Yeah, you are. My name is Alyssa, aka Liz D'Angelo. Beautiful full name. We yeah. love a good full name. You gotta have a full name. But yeah, we have been thinking about doing a podcast since college. We were college yeah. roommates and yeah. besties. Besties. And we're still ever. stuck with each other. Thank I know. goodness. We've reached that level of like besties that we're like, even if something terrible happens, like we still are in each other's lives. Yes. <laughs> like we are the six year like Facebook like, friendship status now. Oh. That like made me tear up a little, honestly. Like I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like I got pretty emo about it, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> it was cute. I just think of how we became friends in college. Yeah. We and... don't need to talk about how we became friends. We just like it just like was a friend of a friend and we um friend of a friend that's no longer our friend. Friend. But that's okay. Um, Definitely. And <laughs> but that's fine. I'm just here throwing people under the bus on the first episode. That's fine. You know what? No names. Who the fuck's gonna listen to this? Us? Like it's fine. Friends and family. Friends and family. Maybe my grandma will listen. Probably not. I don't even know. If I, like, sent her even, like, a voice message, I don't even know if she'd be able to open it. No, that's a lie. She's smart. She's a smart woman. I don't think she could do a pot like a podcast though like I think she'd be like what is going on well um my nana doesn't have a phone my noni does my okay. noni has an ipad I think oh, she could figure it yeah, out my grandma has an ipad she loves that iPad. grandma Girl. ipad nation yo grandma were they the iPads? original like ipad babies they grandmas so fucking are my grandma on that fucking ipad with her little stylus and like it's ginormous it's the size of a tv like it is so big like I'm obsessed with it like I want that ipad so bad like like, I want it. It made me want to get an iPad. I kind of want an Apple TV with a stylus now, just for the size. <gasps> Wait, Game it wouldn't over. be like touchscreen, though. I mean, it could. <sighs> the future. Okay, so we've been talking about doing this podcast for, like, a while. Um, and it started out as, like, ha, 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 we're so... We just, like, love talking. 
and we should Love do a podcast. Talking. Oh my God. But then it kind of got more serious. Like when we both started very actively listening to podcasts, like I listen to podcasts pretty much every day. I would say like anytime I'm like kind of just like doing anything, like I'm walking, I'm driving, in the gym, in the cleaning. Gym. I can't do in the gym. I, I don't can. know why. I love a good Maybe. murder podcast. It makes me run a bit faster. Mm, I, it's inspirational I for need, my well-being. I think I need music, like, yelling at me. Or if I, there was, like, a podcast that was just, like, <gasps> screaming at me, I want... That would... I would run to that. Like, just being, like, coaching almost, but, like, to the void. Like, screaming <laughs> into the void. Inspirational Not screaming. Ins- no, I want it to be, like, mean. I can't be like, oh, good job. Like, Nothing like a I'll good like, soul it. cycle instructor without the soul. Yeah. Just yeah. soulless. Amazing. Well, so here we are. We're both musicians. Clarice, would you like to talk a little bit about your musical experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a little bit more behind the scenes with music in the music industry than Lisa is, and she'll tell you all about that. But I write music for film and television and commercials, basically any like visual media. But I also produce and for all our non-music folk out there, I know what all the big buttons on the board do. It's so And badass. I know the cables and I know so the amps badass. and the mics and all that good stuff. Um, but I also enjoy writing the music. But yeah, I'm trying. I'm more Hollywood industry or trying to be. She's so Hollywood. It's been a... Uh, it's been a struggle, but then again, early years. Hey, you gotta like mop those floors, man. That's what they always say. You gotta clean some toilets or whatever. Pain, the fuck they oh my say. goodness. But yeah, she's amazing. I am a songwriter and a singer. I've La mostly da, been doing da. like. <laughs> so that was my best songwriter <laughs> vocalist impression. God, yes. I've mostly been doing songwriting nowadays. I do sing like on my own tracks, but I like consider myself more of like a songwriter than like, oh, I'm a singer. And she's been kicking ass. I've been doing my best, you know? I mostly like focus on like R&B or pop music. I love those tunes, man. I just love when you're all up in your feels, but also in like a dancing kind of way, like crying in the club. Like that's the kind of music I like to make. Like, yes. I'm like, like a... shaking my ass, but I'm also crying. Like that's, that's the what I perfect description yeah so that's a little bit about our musical stuff i would say like i don't know about you but i would say 90 percent of the podcasts that i listen to are like crime based same yeah you got me onto all the crime podcasts and i yeah. haven't been able to step on the brakes since it's kind of like what like introduced me to podcasts regularly like i think i listened to maybe like one or two podcasts previously but i got really into like all the crime podcasts probably in like 2015 or 16 and then i've just been obsessed with i've been obsessed with true crime crime for a really long time honestly forensic files i've definitely seen every episode about nine thousand times i was born a csi kid my mom and i would watch csi CSI. when i had no idea what was going on but would have all the nightmares you want to know i was like a freak and i used to watch this show i can't even call it like this show like it is one of my favorites i can't really i haven't seen it in a while but it's called dr g medical examiner have you heard of that no okay so dr g i'm not gonna try to say her full name because i forget but she's this lady she's an autopsy what is that a coroner 
like an yes. someone who does mortician. autopsy mortician someone who does autopsies she had like a whole show and basically she would like take you through her doing the autopsy Ooh. but it was like kind of dramatic in like that forensic files type of way like you're finding out the clues yeah and like and yeah, she nice. was and she's just like so cool i was like i want to be you like she i want to rip apart i don't people. know something about like her attitude i was like oh god you're cool i was watching that at like the ripe age of like maybe latest like 10 years old like I was it's good for way character too development. young I was obsessed like it was troubling like my mom would come in like on me watching it and be like what is your problem I think she was kind of scared for a while she was like my daughter's a little bit too interested in like people dying I think it's one of those things where it's just like I I don't get it so like I need to know like everything. you need the knowledge I just think you need to know everything especially when it's like murder to know what to do or what clues to leave i need to know what people exist i need to know i need to know what the fuck like and i need to know what passing by me on the street you know yeah. those stupid ass like i don't know if this is real actually how would they test this that there's always this thing i see across like it's like on twitter or like fucking facebook or whatever it's like you pass by like one in six people you pass by are like killers or something like yeah crazy or like you like run that. into like or like in your lifetime, yeah. I guess. I, and I'm like, okay. How do we know? How do you know that one? Maybe they have an app for it like they do with COVID where it's like, you've been exposed, exposed to <gasps> a murderer. I'm scared. I wish they had that, honestly. Wait, that'd be kind of smart. Should we cut this whole podcast and just make that app instead? You know. Are we too ADD to have like a podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> This is our first podcast. We're already so far off onto this tangent. Well, okay. anyway, let's bring it back in. So let's bring it back in. Clarice, why that I- whole that whole tangent <laughs> was to just describe our love of crime and our interest in that. And so because we are two women here in L.A. pursuing the music industry and also as history shows, L.A. is one of the craziest places on this planet There's as far like as any so many people, so many people, so, so many people. things happening all the time. No and cares about each other these days. Mm-hmm. Well, and the history of LA is like, it's like entertainment and music based. Like yeah. that's how this became a place on the map for totally. the rest of the world, even though it definitely existed before that. I mean, that's why a lot of people move here. Like, exactly. Yeah. A lot of creatives, Creative. if you will. And we're just hopping on that bandwagon. Living we here. did the exact same thing. Here but fucking are. so we do music and we love crime. So we decided to combine the two, finally agreed on a podcast topic, only took us six years. Yeah. And we're having having a whack at it i'm excited i am too i i'm really excited i'm really excited to talk about this topic because i i'm like kind of nervous but i'm excited because i just like can't read and talk at the same time i'm pumped i put i put a salad to go in my purse and i showed up here it was like not even like i'm ready like a little like container no it, 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 was was a, it was a yeah it was a bag of salad <laughs> that i had to mix into Trader a big Joe's bowl salad. my big bowl. vegan ranch crunch guys it's get on it fuck. all right clarice i would love to hear you've kind of given me like hints on like what you're doing but i honestly don't really know a lot about like even just like the broad topic of what you're about to talk about so i'm really excited so to, listeners like, i will preface this with <laughs> Liz and I both have Italian heritage and we love a good big sauce pot. We love a good family meal. So of course we love a good mafia story. Yes. And like I had always kind of like, well not kind of known, like you can read it in a history book. Yeah. Acting like I'm a history know-it-all all all of a sudden. So true. (laughs) 
But the mafia definitely had ties in the music and the entertainment industry. And I just wanted to dive in because I was like, okay, well, they had to have ties in the music, but like how? Yeah. I'm about to tell you a story. I'm scared. Go. Where everyone seems to have a record, both musical and criminal. Boom. Boom. Good hook. I took such a long time to find those words. Okay. So iconic. Uh, So basically the overview... This is a story about MCA Records and the Mafia. And during their darkest hour in business history, MCA Records called upon the involvement of various mob and crime family members to pull them out of bankruptcy and back into the limelight. The best part. Do you want to know the best part or do you want me to wait? No. You don't want to know? Wait, take a dramatic pause. They get away with it. Oh, of course they do. They always fucking do. The Mafia gets away with it and the people involved get away with it. To an extent. Mafia in the greater sense of the term. People definitely go to jail for this. But yeah, yeah. MCA is fine. They're fine. And I'll I'll talk more about that later. I mean, they're still like a big record label, aren't they? So a little bit about MCA, actually. MCA Records. MCA stands for Music Corporation of America and is owned or was owned by MCA Incorporated. That was founded in 1942. But originally, there was this other brand, a record company called Decca Records, Mm -hmm. which was founded in 1934 by E.R. Lewis. And Decca Records itself had a UK and a United States branch. So there was like under the same thing, but there were two different places. And E.R. Lewis, fearful of the possible financial damage to, you know, any UK company, including his record label from the rising Nazi hostilities at the time, Mm -hmm. he correctly predicted World War II. Wait, I'm sorry. Like what year are you in right now? This is... No, that's a good point. So this is after 19, or 1934 and pre-1942. Okay. So this is right before World War II breaks out. Okay. And E.R. Lewis saw that, like, you know, the Nazis were, you know, gaining control in Germany. And he was like, oh, I don't know how this is going to fare for any of the... Just like the... Any rec- companies in Britain, including sure. his record company. So yeah. he was like, I'm going to break apart and I'm just going to go to the U.S. branch. I'm going to break apart the U.K. and the U.S. branches. And then... In In 1942, MCA Incorporated, and they had already been an entertainment company in film and television. They didn't have a record branch, like for music. So in 1942, they bought the Decca Records United States location. They absorbed it. So Decca Records is technically under MCA Records now. Gotcha. And their name will dissolve like later on, but that's not important. I've heard of Decca Records. Like that's like a Mm -hmm. pretty like known name. Absolutely. And they like managed to stay Decca Records under MCA Records for like a while. It was a long time. Mm -hmm. But they don't exist anymore. Right. So like I said, MCA Incorporated was already a television entertainment company. And when they acquired this American Decca, MCA Records was born in 1962. That's when they officially Okay. So 1962, MCA Records is a thing. All right. We're in the 60s. 60s. Loving it. So some successful artists that came out of this record company included Elton John. Mm-hmm. Elton John's Crocodile Rock was actually their first big record release. Oh. Big hit. Yeah. In 1962. Okay. So they went, they came in with a bang. Wait, mm-hmm. what is it? Yeah. I don't know. They had saying. Neil Diamond's Hot August Night in 1972. Elton John's double album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, like mm-hmm. right after in 1973. Mm-hmm. The Who, in general, were recording with the UK, with the UK branch UK. of DECA. So that was still owned by MCA. So they were a brand under there. And then some other notable artists would have been Cher, Olivia Newton John. Aww. Leonard Skinner. Wait, rest in peace, Olivia Newton. <sighs> I know. I recent. Cried. Such a tragedy. Continue. 
Um, Leonard Skinner. Did you just say? I Leonard said Skinner? Leonard Skinner. My dad loves Leonard Skinner. Tony goes, listening is going to be Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> With his little like guitar yeah. hand motion. <laughs> Love that man. <laughs> a 1973 film the sting soundtrack was recorded at mca which is a little like homage to me and my industry love yeah. that for them and it won the oscar for the best original score that year so that was a big deal jimmy buffett tom petty steely dan bb king bobby brown blink 182 mary j blige meatloaf meatloaf and the roots those are some other people dude that's yeah. like every big that's a big yeah so that's like very very yeah. and that's like and over it the course spreads over like a lot of genres yeah so the dark times that i was talking about earlier yeah tell me about the dark times i'm not i'm not interested in when they were thriving i, I want to hear about the dark times <laughs> well just so you know what kind of record company we're okay. dealing with in 1980, MCA Records became known as the Music Cemetery of America. Oh my God. Due to a huge surplus of unprofitable records sitting unsold in their warehouses. So like, you know, they would sell records, yeah. but they would order more than they would sell. And usually, you know, the amount wasn't that far off to where you could still make a decent amount of profit. They were doing that. They, they were very far off and not profiting. Like they were plummeting into bankruptcy. That's embarrassing. They were flopping. Yeah. So that's like the music business business part of this um but in 1983 irving azoff Mm -hmm. who is very much alive and well today yeah he became the head of mca records and essentially saved the company from bankruptcy and here's where the spice comes into play come on spice all righty do you even want to go into this do you no i'm gonna save it okay we're gonna save that part now i'm now i want to know more than ever so okay so all you need to know is that 1983 when azoff is in power essentially okay between 1983 and 1987 that's kind of like where the drama and the crime of this comes into that's only five years mm-hmm. and it's, it's like, so, so quick it's, it's so, so, deep so quick too, isn't it it is. So I'm going to save, I'm going to save that, but I'm going to continue on just in the history of MCA and okay. just say that 1995, Seagram, the Seagram company, like ginger ale. Oh, like the, no, they make like ginger beer, don't gin, they? No, it's ginger ale and like other beverages, but just like the beverage company, yeah. Seagram. Seagram. They bought MCA records in 1995 after, you know, the turmoil we're going to talk about happened. Is that like common where like, I guess, like, because, like, Coca-Cola owns, like, everything. Like, yeah, own, so, like, the really more I, like, research this, the more I found out that, like, actually the people running our industry have nothing to do with music. Well, that's so common. Like, you see that in a lot of, like, people that run, like, larger businesses within the music mm-hmm. industry. Like, the higher-ups are not musicians. Like, they almost, I don't want to say they almost never are, but I feel like a good deal of them, right. like, either don't know any, not anything about music, but they they, they don't know music, you know? They don't, and it's, it's disappointing. Yeah, they just like see it. Makes me angry. Yeah. So 1995, Seagram bought MCA. In 1996, MCA, the new owners, they dropped the MCA name and renamed it Universal Studios Incorporated. (gasps) Yes, MCA became Universal. And then the music side of things became the Universal Music Group. That's literally new. (gasps) Universal is 1996. Before it was MCA. Wait. That's insane to me. Am I stupid? I did not know that. I know. Neither did I. I've Wait, literally applied Universal, for jobs with these people. Yeah, they have like one of the biggest, like, that's, yeah. if not the biggest, like, yeah, especially definitely. right now. <gasps> and then 1997. This is savage. 
like we were saying before, like yeah. with the big companies, 1997, sure. Seagram sold to General Electric. And General, GE owns they own, Universal. They own everything, Yeah, so dude. that's just like it's furthers like, that yeah. point. Watch us get like sued by GE or some <laughs> shit. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't. We're just, uh, we're just recounting history here. Uh, nothing illegal. This is all very public information. It's I will much, cite my sources. Yeah, cite your, nah, yeah. And um, <laughs> since 2003, the MCA label, the label picture, they absorbed into Get records which we've okay. heard about yeah and that's a sister company of the universal music group right. and they manage the rock pop and quote-unquote urban music catalogs i hate that i hate that word hate that a lot i was like urban uh that is a topic for another podcast god but it's fucking ridiculous and stupid and ugly i hate that but mca nashville is alive and well and still using that name and they do oh. like country catalogs and artists like so exclusively they still, and they still use the mca logo like why How? i have no idea i couldn't find i bet there's information out I'm there i'm sure there is but yeah no they just they still use it and it's just for the country stuff Stuff. Otherwise, okay. everything else is either under Geffen Records, or which is Universal. then under Universal. Gotcha. So Universal is like a big umbrella for all of this. Yeah. Okay, so that's the record company we're talking about in this okay. issue at it's hand. It's a big deal. Yes. Alrighty. So here's our story. So what would begin as a simple tax investigation in California of 1983, so same year that Azov came in, mm-hmm. it would turn into a spotlight shining upon the dark corners of the music and record industry, rocking the foundations of record companies, especially MCA records. Mm-hmm. So one of the dark corners of this industry was this group of people called The Network. And they were independent promoters who influenced top 40 airplay like on radio and chart rankings through bribes of cash and cocaine so like and payola had, yeah kinda. exactly payola yeah. exactly um and had a 200 million album a year cutout industry oh my god infiltrated by the mafia so if you know the cocaine and cash bribes weren't a uh, little red flag yeah um, this cutout industry is going to be like specifically what we talk about. Okay. So this is the story of the alleged mafia ties with MCA records during their graveyard of music era. And as we know, this isn't the first time the mafia got involved with the entertainment or music industry. In fact, like nightclub owners in Chicago, New York, and LA, among like other cities, probably Philadelphia and, you know, Detroit, all that stuff. They were owned and operated by mob activity, like Al Capone. I saw in like another article, this is definitely something else I can get into, but like jukebox sales. Oh yeah. Were the owned mob? by like No, like the mob like was everywhere. I don't even know mm-hmm. if the was is like the correct like, They just had they had they fronts, they had businesses and they dude, it was like, like in the entertainment industry and like the fucking yeah. restaurants and the bars. You know, if like they anywhere. didn't kill people, they just would be ruthless business owners. They literally had like, to put violence into it and that makes them the mob. That and I you mean, know, a little garlic bread and some some mama mia. We're gonna get mob killed. I hope not. I <laughs> Don't do love that. Don't make fun them. of the mob. Okay, I am Italian. <laughs> You're Italian. Doesn't that like somewhat? Yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> your last name is D'Angelo. I know that's that got must some get like royalty. I guess. Of the angels. That's what that means yeah, for our so. translation right there. All right. It does. So up until 1983, so that, you know, the year mm-hmm. that the tax evasion stuff became an issue and that Azov was in there, um, there were no suspicions of mob activity within the big six companies. Uh, so CBS, WEA, Capital, BMG, Polygram, and MCA. So those are the big six. Right. And they just thought, you know, mobs were in smaller independent labels, but the big six accounted for 
90% of record business in America. Yeah. So it doesn't really leave a lot of room. Yeah. So they're like, okay, the mob is working literally in the 10%. So it's not worth getting into. We just know what happens. Do they really think that though? Like, I... Well... So that is until 1983 came around and MCA hired Irving Azoff as the new president. At this point, MCA was the weakest of the big six in terms of finances and image. So they needed a big time resurrection considering their cutout recording surplus was driving them into bankruptcy. Yeah. Right. Because they had all those things in the warehouses. Mm-hmm. All right. So just to clarify, a cutout record is... Basically, when like you have vinyl records, which were the primary medium for distribution of sound recordings, they would cut the corner, punch a hole, or add a notch to the spine of the jacket of unsold records returned from resellers. So basically, you know, if they couldn't sell it in the stores, they gave it back to the record company. Like marked, like marked, yeah. So because That's it like was a big middle finger, they're like. Fuck yeah, you. well, because they were marked, they still functioned. Yeah. But they would be resold to other record retailers for discounted pricing. So they're considered remainders and overstock. So they're cut out of a record label's catalog. So like clearance, like rec- clearance records, mm-hmm. basically. Very discounted. It wouldn't go on like the catalog for, like they would have right. to sell them, sure. but it wouldn't be like, you know, on present catalog with like the new and upcoming things. Right. So let's talk about President. Azoff. So Irving Azoff, I found a really funny quote in the LA Times to like describe him. Yeah. But he was described as an aggressive and abrasive super manager. Okay. Became big because he managed the Eagles, Jimmy oh. Buffett, Chicago, all the way up to presently Nicki Minaj. What? And Travis Scott. Although he does no longer work with Travis Scott because he described him as unmanageable and a little wild. What? But he did, like, I guess for, like, Astroworld. <gasps> yeah, he was under like, Azov. that recent? Mm-hmm, that oh. recent. So this guy's still alive. Dude, he probably left because of that, don't you think? Yeah, so. Yeah. <gasps> LA Times. Oh, that's the, the LA Times quote that I love. He's only five feet, three inches, a diminutive Cine Pollock in jeans, and a zip-up sweater. In photos from the 70s, when he was considerably less professional... Um, he was a hipster exec with a spring-loaded middle finger. Wait, I'm sorry. He was 5'3"? He is short. I am... I know. We have feelings about this. <laughs> Are we about to lose all our 5'3 male Good. audience members? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Some of you are okay, but most of you... Stop. Just stop talking. He sported a beard and helmet of curly hair and a mischievous eyes behind his shades and looks a little like a Muppet who might scream at Kermit (gasps) over Dr. Teeth's appearance fee. Wait, I'm sorry. Can you show me a picture of him? Because like this description is giving me, it's giving me life. Yes. But I just want to see how accurate it is. What's it? Irving? Azoff. Azoff. (gasps) <laughs> yeah he does kind of look like a muppet yeah. why do why <gasps> oh do people in this God. you know truly they are great at their jobs and could afford you know to stay behind the scenes does that make me shallow but it is there are some scary looking people in all businesses i guess Girl, wait until mine oh um, yeah <laughs> no bueno all righty so his father was a pharmacist and his mother was a bookkeeper 
He grew up in Danville, Illinois. Okay. I don't I know nothing about that. I know nothing other than there's a Danville, California. And oh, really? I have family there. Oh, cute. so I just outed my family to the rest of the world. That's great. Okay. Anyway, moving on. They're going to find you. The mob is going to find your Danville I just, family. I just gave it up to them. <laughs> you just gave them the information. Just just wait till the end and I will give you my social. Okay. Bribe yeah, you have to, to listen listening. through the entire you have to listen thing. Through the entire thing and then you'll social. get the front and back of her credit card. We're here to give it to you. Any important info, numbers, gotta. I am I am one for the people. <laughs> <laughs> but so he booked his first shows in high school to pay for college. He dropped out of college to run a small Midwestern concert booking empire and to manage local acts. He moved to LA. At 21, he got his first glorified intern job. So I'm assuming glorified means paid, like the bare minimum, I guess. No, I feel like glorified intern means like, yeah, they still made coffee and like did all the sweeping and stuff. But sometimes they'd like be in the room, like taking notes. Got it. So like, that's like in what my actual mind. interns do, but don't get credit for. Yes. <laughs> well, like sometimes like interns are like, oh, we'll give you experience. And like, that's never the case these days. Mm. Like hate on you all the time. Yeah. Well, he was a glorified intern yeah. for Maroon 5's then manager, what? Jordan Foldstein or Foldstein. Foldstein? One of those two. But again, big guy in the industry. Yeah. But after a week of filing and fetching coffee, he called his father and complained that he was bored. Like, I get it. <laughs> like, I, I do get that. Mm-hmm. I will say. <laughs> yeah. So then he moved over and he met the Eagles while working for David Geffen and Elliot Roberts, their management company. Okay. And then followed the band out the door when they left. Oh, so he was they, just So like... the Eagles left Geffen and became the cornerstone of his like empire. Like they, that's what set him off. So and, he like, basically got him. was like, hey, the Eagles, um, I'm just this guy. Can I work for you? Mm-hmm. So I guess like because they God, left. I would do that. They left David Geffen's management and Azoff was their intern. So yeah. when they left, he was like, I'm going to go with you. Go and then him. I bet that was like a real brotherhood thing. And then, I mean, they blew up, of course. So that wasn't, yeah. you know, wrong Oh, this for was them. before the Eagles were like the Eagles? The Eagles. Yeah, this, so this oh. was like, I guess they were already kind of the Eagles, but yeah. under Azoff, they became gotcha. the Eagles. Okay. Definitely. He credits Eagles members with, you know, giving him his swagger. That's what he says. Oh, I don't quote like it. that word at all. Now he's a bit of a cooler dude. He, um, is a manager and a co-founder of a lobbying group, the Music Arts Coalition. Oh. And he's devoting more time and energy into a broad range of artist rights issues. Sure. Um, from health insurance to royalty rates, copyright reversion, and the Assembly Bill 5 in California, which threatened musicians' independent contractor status. But oh. he got Newsom to sign that bill. Oh, he personally. did? Wow. So he's just trying to protect the artists. Right. He still takes on new clients, but says it's not for the money. He said everything he's doing now, building clout through the Azoff company. He has his own company. He just got accepted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Oh, wow. He said it's just about building clout for that company. <sighs> Can you That's just, why like, he imagine accepts a these. Five three yeah. man using words like swagger yep. and clout. I know, I know. And he he had quoted saying clout too, I'm which is just a great hater. for me. Like I, but I mean, you know, Astro World that enough said got the company, <laughs> you know, what it needed, and yeah. now he is in a better position to fight artist rights issues, which I think is like. If he's viewing it that way, yeah. I hate him a little less. It's still like after what he did, especially when you're going to hear it, it's just kind of like, man, yeah. he truly got out of this unbruised and is doing great right now. He's still taking people on. He's still 
golfing in Pebble Beach as he loves to do so much. Should I see if he wants to manage me, Azoff? If you're listening, if you do, to I this, feel like your life would be. You might get too cool for this podcast. Never, never. Okay, so Azoff gets to MCA 1983. So that was Azoff. That was a little background on him. Yeah. He gets to MCA 1983. And coincidentally, but not, at the same time that he gets there, another fellow, Sal Pacello. That's the most Italian name ever. Rhyming moment. Sal. Sal Pacello. He came on board, but he came on board without a title, an official job, a salary, or any knowledge of the record business. But he became in charge of the cutout sales, that big thing that was causing them all that bankruptcy. So when Azoff became president, there was around 10 million of these cutout discs sitting in warehouses. 10 million? 10 million. And MCA used to sell these to the highest bidder per unit. But Pacello had other plans for the way they were going to be sold. And who was Sal Pacello? Let me get into him now because he is another big person. Yeah. Also known as Sal the Baker. Amazing. Or Sal the Swindler. (gasps) Sal the Swindler. I know. It just rolls off the nice S sounds. I want that to be my name. It's very true for him, though. He was officially named Salvatore James Pacello and was a mobster who was linked to the New York Gambino crime family. Oh, wow. Yeah, big crime family that dealt with trafficking of narcotics in the Mexico, Italy, Panama, among other places. Um, What we know of Pacello is that he was born in 1923 in New York. His early years really didn't make it into public record, but we do know that he was notorious for swindling and had been on government government radar before he made his way to MCA. So they already kind of knew of him and they knew of his ties. He would just like, well, he was known as a high ranking soldier in the Gambino family. Oh, So they had already done, you know, research on the mob and they had linked him already to that family. And then they saw he made his way out to MCA during their darkest hour. And they were like, that's kind of suspicious, especially after that case, like, you know, all the cases of tax evasion started opening up. There were also a series of record and tape counterfeiting operations that led federal investigators to suspect that organized crime figures were worming their way into the lucrative music business. There was this convention called the National Association of Recording Merchandisers in Florida in 1984. You know, FBI agents set up shop there and they saw that several mob people that they knew face of showed up to this convention. And they're like, okay, well, this is for the record business. Why are these Why are these mob people showing up and why are they showing up alone as if to represent the company? Yeah, so big, big red flags. Yeah, that's not even sneaky at mm-hmm. all. And that was Just, one year, so 1984 was one year after he got to MCA. So he showed right. up to that 1984 convention in Florida representing MCA. And the FBI was there. So that almost, Were you know, they solidified. FBI kind of like, they had this on their radar, like tracked it all the way through kind of thing mm-hmm. okay yeah and i'm gonna i'll get more into that not, yeah right? all right so let's get to the details so we know that Pacello showed up to mca right after azoff in 1983 and had plans to turn around the cutout disc graveyard that was costing the mca record company a ton of money Pacello came into control of the cutout sale business and started partnering with other record distributors coincidentally also owned by other mobsters with ties to crime families all over the u.s Three big names that we need to be aware of. So John Lamont or Lamonte. I've heard of John Lamonte. Mm-hmm. Who owned Out of the Past Incorporated, was a record distributor in Philly, uh-huh. so Philadelphia, along with Morris Levy or Levy, president of Roulette Records in New York. And then another reputed crime boss, Gatiano Vistola. Vistola and Levy were like 
BFFs. Okay. Levy himself, not a mobster, but he was associated with Vistola, who was a proven crime boss. He was just like friends with mobsters. Exactly. I want to live that life. I want to be friends with a mobster. So the main feud that blew this whole thing out of the water, like how did, you know, the FBI finally get to crack down? So Pacello and Lamonte. Pacello had agreed to the biggest record cutout deal with Lamonte, and it was made at that convention in 1984. Lamonte himself was in the import and cutout business, had served a 1977, like in 1977, had a prison sentence um, for record counterfeiting. Oh my God. Yeah. So he was looking for a business deal that, you know, would bring him back into some real money and help him and the record company bounce back from that. So he made this deal with Pacello. And the deal was that for 1.2 to 1.3, I saw a bunch of different sources, but 1.2 to 1.3 million dollars, Lamonte was going to pay Pacello for 4.2 million albums and cassettes. This means that, you know, MCA would get rid of this like where, like, you know, a significant number of albums. Like almost half. Almost half. Yeah. Yeah. And give it to Lamonte to distribute because he owned a record company and probably, you know, distribute it to other record companies or other stores. Right. But basically it was, he was giving 4.2 million albums for a discounted rate of like 1.2 to 1.3 million. So less than half, right? Because cut out discounted price. Right. But you're right. Like that's more than half of the like 10 million in the, or not more than half, less than half, but almost half of the 10 million that were in the warehouse. So the biggest sale of all all these cutout things. So that was between Pacello and Lamonte. Very public. There was a meeting that occurred um, in the Palm Restaurant in Los Angeles. So here in Los Angeles, where Pacello and Lamonte finalized the deal. Other executives were there, including Azoff. So Azoff was publicly seen sitting with these two guys, two shady guys. And was this like all on paper or was it kind of like an under the table kind of thing or kind of like in the middle? So it was definitely under the table. Right. And I'll get into that too. Okay. But it was typical in these cutout deals that sweetener albums would be added to the purchase to make the deal more attractive to the buyer. So sweeteners were the popular records by major recording stars. Oh, okay. Because cutouts, you know, were not the latest and the hottest. They would put discounted sweeteners in there Mm. so that these distributors could sell in the moment records at an upscale price. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's like, they're like, hey, buy all these, you know, older records. Yeah. We're going to give you new Elton John ones to sell because Elton John is hot right now. So that will make you want to buy the millions of others. Yeah. And it worked. It worked. So Lamonte should have sniffed out trouble when Pacello demanded off the book cash payments and randomly bought Morris Levy. Remember Morris Levy? Yeah. As a guarantor of good faith and professionalism. So Levy was there just being like, you know, Pacello means what he says. Like, we don't want any of this purchasing to, you know, be on paper. To kind of be like, this is the real deal. But it's, you're going to get these things. Yeah. This is the real deal. Exactly. Like kind of almost as like a witness almost. Mm -hmm. Or just to kind of be like, he's a good guy. Like I'm a good guy. Right. Levy was the founder of Roulette Records. Right. And the owner of various publishing and management companies and a major independent figure in the 50s and 60s. He had long been considered mob up with his business so like he was the sweetener like yeah well not even (laughs) he sounds like very not sweet to me no (laughs) it's no surprise that like because he his business was mobbed up that he could be linked to Pacello like you know yeah everyone knows everyone in the mob world I know that's so true this transaction was agreed upon by word 
60 tractor trailers showed up to Lamonte's Philly residence, not his house, but you know the record company, missing 600,000 of the record's promise. Ooh. How do they... And (laughs) the number that that was missing also included the Sweetener records. (gasps) All of them? Yes. Yo, that's Everything that made it worthwhile. And on this actual transaction, those recordings would have been by Elton John, The Who, Neil Diamond, and Olivia Newton-John. Dude. Those were the sweeteners of the time, yeah. So, you know, he began to sniff out trouble. He's like, okay, I have all these tractors showing up, and I was promised... 4.1 4. 4.1 or 2? 4.2 million albums and cassettes. And I'm missing 600,000 of them. And of those 600,000 are all the sweeteners that made this deal worthwhile. That's like such an insane number. Just like 4.2 million. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns and out like that... 600,000. Like that's just nuts. Yeah, I know. Well, Pacello had sold <gasps> those 600,000. Unbeknownst to Lamonte, of course, unbeknownst. So Lamonte refused to pay Pacello. <gasps> so naturally... Pacello threatened Lamonte's life if he didn't pay or he wanted the entire shipment back. He was like, you get it all. What I'm giving you, you pay me everything or you get nothing. Damn. While this drama with the transaction was happening, corporate auditors were putting pressure on MCA records to collect the money owed in taxes at the time. This money was in fact the money that Pacello and Levy owed to MCA through their various successful and unsuccessful deals before and including this deal. No. So this deal- Like at that exact same time. Yes, so they had (gasps) other deals beforehand. Dude, that done, like and some of those movie. were successful, yeah, and some were unsuccessful. But this deal, considering how big it was, it's huge. They needed MCA needed that money. Like yeah. Pacello owed that money to them because he promised he'd get it going. You know? Yeah, totally. The pressure ultimately fell on Lamonte, who had coughed up thirty thousand dollars as well as six hundred thousand dollars. But that was only half of what he owed because he owed the one point two million, mm-hmm. right? Levy's brute force ambassador. Gatiano Vistola. His brute and fourth. <laughs> you like that word? I love that. Why? So Vistola, because you know, Levy's professional. He shows up. His muscle. Yeah, so he Just needs his muscle. muscle. Brute force. Brute You'll force. see why. <laughs> oh my God. So Vistola took a visit to New Jersey in 1985 to talk to Lamonte about copping up the rest of the 1.2 million that he owed to Pacello. Lamonte refused again. To pay him because he's like, "Mm -hmm." so, you know, what does Vasello do in a very calm manner? I assume like, is he trying to be like tough guy? I'd be fucking shitting. I know dealing with crime bosses. There's it's another level. They're not going to empty promise threaten you. Like that's like real deal shit. Yeah. Well, the fact that Vistola showed up on because they're, you know, out of L.A. Yeah. So the fact that's like all this drama is happening at your door that shows up in New Jersey, found him in New Jersey. So when, you know, Lamonte refused, Vistola hit him with a single punch that crushed the side of his face. One punch. What? Splintered his jaw, fractured his eye socket, and crushed his sinus cavities. Dude. So after the assault, Lamonte became convinced. Can you even call that assault? It's like one punch. Honestly, probably like should have killed him. I guess you could. Yeah, that literally. But it was one punch. It It was pretty clean. Bro. 
Oh. But so, you know, after this happened, Lamonte was convinced that Pacello and Levy were trying to extort the money from him. So he agreed to cooperate with the feds. Oh. Yes. He's snitching. One punch (gasps) and this man magically turned into a rat, like Cinderella and her pumpkins. Dude, he is making bad decision after bad fucking decision. Like he's... Being so stupid. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't sniff out the red flags and he's paying for it. What? Literally. The fuck. Yeah. The fact that he started agreeing with the feds as an undercover witness is kind of what let them, you know, blow up the whole investigation because yeah. he wore a wire, wiretapped phone conversations. Oh my god. Pacella was wiretapped, <gasps> Levy was wiretapped, Bastola was wiretapped, and he became a key witness in two federal grand jury investigations. Explain my fucking face right now. I know you look you're like it's astonishing, but it's, it's also crazy. like it's just like what do you think is gonna happen when you get involved with the fucking mafia? Yeah. Like what do you think is gonna happen? Exactly. Well, someone Lamonte was gi- already in the mafia. Like, like he is he is a part of this. Like he knows. I know. But and like, then he turns he turns federal. But like, isn't that like number one? Even in like outside yeah. of the mob, mm-hmm. like that is number one crime rule. Like if you're a snitch, like you're the worst. Yeah. That's like right below like child killers yeah no it's real bad and i do know like it's not really a spoiler but he's still in hiding like he's alive but he's in hiding now oh. even to this day since oh, so, this like, happened no one he, knows where he is yeah right his now. his family are placed under federal protection like witness <gasps> protection like so they're from the 80s like they're still dude yeah oh my god so he told him a lot he blew this whole thing open over the course of Pacello's two-year business with MCA, he received around $250,000 in loans from the record company for his deals, but it nearly cost the company itself $3 million for oh those same God. deals. He gave MCA unsigned checks and those that were signed bounced, but MCA simply wrote him off. So he was literally costing this company money. And they were like, we're giving you this money to make sure these deals go through and that you do a job that you're technically and not officially said to be doing, which is still insane to me. But he ended up costing the business so much money. Pacella was never doing anything in the best interest of MCA records. And by the time the media and press started swarming and making allegations mm-hmm. between Azoff and ties to the Pacello and the mafia, Pacello quietly left the company in 1985. So he tried to get out. But get this. What a coincidence. In February of 1986, a federal grand jury in Los Angeles began to investigate the relationship between Pacello and MCA, as well as, like, you know, the allegations of Paola, which we talked about. Right. um, Which is, you know, bribing commercial radio stations to play music. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you know, like making the charts and making more money unfairly. Yep. So by September of 1986, a federal grand jury in Newark... So New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So that's where Lamonte was a key witness. This grand jury indicted 21 people for a variety of racketeering charges, including the extortion scheme of Lamonte. So those were part of the charges. So among those named in the 117 count indictment were Levy and Vestola. Pacella wasn't indicted here because there was another case for him in Los Angeles. So he was kind of being tried separately. Exactly. He had his own he because he had of, his own damn thing. Because going of MCA, yeah. yeah, he was located in Los Angeles. So anything else, I like, couldn't really get a hold of him. But they took down Levy and Vestola. Oh my God. Yeah. He was like, You're gonna punch me in the face. I'm gonna tattle on you. Oh <laughs> I'm gonna tell the feds. You Yo. punched me. 
And yeah, so that's what happened. That's nuts. So which leads us to July of 1987 when Pacella was officially indicted for failing to pay enough taxes on nearly $600,000 he earned in business with MCA Records. So a federal grand jury uh, convened by the Justice Department's strike force on organized crime handed down a three-count indictment charging Pacello, who at the time was 64, with attempted tax evasion. Pacello earned nearly $600,000 in 1983, 1984, and 1985, so the two years that he was at MCA. Yeah. But paid only $27,000 in taxes during those three years, which is... Like total? Yeah. So oh my God. Definitely not reporting on everything. But MCA issued a statement saying that the company and its employees had no knowledge of Pacello's personal finances. They're like, we had no idea this was going on. We had no idea he wasn't paying his taxes. We had, we, we gave him this money. We had no idea. So after many months of Pacello's defense arguing with the court, his defense thought that the prosecution headed by Rudnick, who is an amazing FBI agent here. I can go more into him, but he honestly deserves his own story. Yeah. Rudnick had been onto them since the 1984 convention and he knew before like he was involved with so many other like wiretappings and conspiracies like he knew the mafia was a part of this he just needed to figure out how right so he was already on to that side but he was arguing in court more in like the road towards like this is a mafia charge rather than like Pacello was on tax evasion yeah Pacello was on trial for tax evasion and Rudnick kept trying to bring the mafia not like conspiracy he's like trying to get like a conspiracy exactly like he's trying to he's trying to like tie it over but right at the end of the day Pacello was on trial for tax evasion and his defense was like Rudnick can't keep on arguing that this is a mafia case this is not a mafia case and you're making my client look bad and you're making MC records look bad like you got to stop doing this yeah that kind of delayed a verdict but in 1988 Pacella was found guilty of two counts of income tax evasion that's it I know out of the three only two so so like the judge didn't allow like any sort of mob talk to be considered into their like anything yeah no no, it was, they were literally just on trial for cha- like tax evasion. That's where it's like, this is how they get away with it. I know. I, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Cause like you can't, it's, they're not like being like charged with mm-hmm. that like crime, mm-hmm. but like that, that feels relevant to like the case. Absolutely. You know I mean? Absolutely. Like, but they couldn't, even if they're not being charged with they it, they couldn't like, prove it enough. I know. And is that crazy? And that's this, I mean, same thing happened for Levy and Vistola. Like right. they were indicted on tax evasion yeah. and you know, everything that they did to Lamonte on behalf of like collecting money, the verdict here. And I like just like quoted because yeah, it was just, it was solid. Judge Rhea had determined and, you know, announcing his verdict that Pacello had no intention of repaying MCA. He said that like the $250 that he got from them to the deals were like in loans. And he was like, oh, they're loans, meaning I'm going to pay them back. So the judge was like, no, you were never planning on doing that. Um, So therefore the money wasn't loaned to him. If you have no intention of repaying it, it's not a loan. Yeah. But the judge also pointed his finger at MCA and wondered aloud why the company was so reluctant to make Pacello pay up. I agree. Fear of the mafia. Fair point. Mm-hmm. He noted that Pacello had given MCA three undated checks and that had been drawn on an empty account only after MCA was being audited. The so air qu- she used air quotes against Mm-hmm. So they, the MCA was being audited, you know, by their executives, which is right. why, you know, they needed the money. And that's the only time when they really cared that these checks bounced. Yeah. They were like, oh, now it affects me. Mm-hmm. They didn't have evidence that reflected 
the fact that they were trying to make an effort to collect. Right. He also couldn't understand why the MCA had made no like effort to institute legal proceedings against Pacello to recover on these transactions. They're like, why, yeah, like, they you, why don't you care that you're losing money? Like that, yeah. In his closing argument, Rudnick managed to raise the questions that made him suspicious of MCA in the first place and which remain unanswered. So Rudnick is, you know, our prosecutor. Yeah. He said, quote, and it's great. The lesson learned from this trial is that when you have business deals made in a corrupt atmosphere, it breeds unreported income and tax evasion. Pacello and MCA had a business relationship, not because of his background in the record business, but for some other unexplained series of events that cast a cloud over the testimony at this trial. As far as Pacello goes, he had a four-year sentence. He only served two. Four? Mm-hmm. Come on. But he only, he had, yeah, he ended I know, up only serving I two. And... I read, I don't have, I know I like, I know I marked it in my sources, but yeah. as soon as he got out, he like bounced back and like tried selling like scripts or screen rights to Dude. TV companies. Like he was Give still trying rest. to get in this industry. Give yeah. it a rest. But um, his later life is a little bit undocumented and unclear. I'm sure. Yeah. But so here's the big thing. So the one troublesome guy in this situation gets you know, hit on the head yeah. and goes to jail, does his time, whatever. Right. But MCA records is fine. And we now know them as universal. Like they have been fine. Again, one of the, if not the biggest mm-hmm. record labels. So how did MCA come out of this without a bruise for literally having mafia ties? Think about the very public meeting right. of Azoff and all his buddies in the bar in LA. So Azoff wasn't like involved really in any of these trials or anything. No, he was not on trial. None of the executives at MCA were on trial. Just Pacello. This was Pacello's tax evasion trial. Yeah. How did they manage to avoid that? Right. So it all goes back to Reagan. Oh, God. Ronald Reagan. Okay. And the Justice Department under his, you know, term. When Reagan was in his acting and film career of like 22 years before he was, you know, the president, MCA Incorporate, which, you know, did management of Mm -hmm. television, they were his manager, specifically... The chairman, Lou Wesserman, who was considered to be one of the most powerful men in Hollywood and was personally Reagan's agent back in the day. The Justice Department went out of their way to protect MCA in this whole process. Like, it's very sus. What? Wesserman was celebrating his 50th year at the company in 1986 amongst, like, while all the federal jury trials were happening. Oh my he celebrated 50 years at that company. More of a reason for the president to ensure a smooth cover-up of his favorite entertainment agency. Yeah. There's no smoking gun to like prove all this, but there right. was a number of questionable acts by the government, including their own dismissal of Prosecutor Rudnick. Mm-hmm. And they reined him in because he was trying to go for MCA executives. And they said no. Wow. Just focus on Pacello. I want to say that surprises me, but it just like, it's so scary how like much power some people in this, or a lot of people like in this world yeah. like, have like in within like this system. Mm-hmm. Not even just like the music industry, just like in general, like just it's insane. Just big business. And like he said, like Rudnick, like his quote about like, you know, that giant cloud, yeah. you know, that casts over this trial, like, you know, literally shady business deals brews a shady business environment. And he's yeah. not wrong. And I no, mean, we still see all. it. I There was like two books and I like, they're really good. They're also part of my sources, but I'll just cite them now. 
um, Stifled, a true story of MCA, the music business and the mafia by William Nodesedler. Nodesetter. I'm so sorry for pronouncing that incorrectly. And Dan Muldea's 1985 book, Dark Victory, Ronald Reagan, MCA and the mob. They outline, they like go through these like government questionable acts just to like ensure that MCA came out without a scratch, like in more detail. But yeah, so that's my story. That was nuts, dude. MCA is now universal and they exist. They had a whole thing. Like this deal, it did bring them back into the limelight. Dude, I didn't know It took them out of bankruptcy. And they they were untouched. Like, you know, Pacella paid the price and, you know, these other mobsters paid the price, but but they only served two years. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, and I love just just the fact that I was like, oh man, my boy Elton John is a part of this. I know. His records records are in these dirty deals. I can't believe it. (laughs) But so, I mean... I guess the big uh, takeaway, kind of like my new career goal, is I'm going to be a boss bitch and become big enough so that I have mafia friends. <laughs> and maybe Biden will want to do my bidding as well. Uh, and that would just be fucking would amazing. Would you want Biden to do your bidding? You know, maybe not. But like, you know, it's it's the it's the control. Yeah. So but yeah, so. That's fucking nice. Well, if I ever work for Universal, I'm just going to be like, Sorry. I know what you did. <laughs> He, 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 he. You should listen to my podcast and uh, maybe you don't even know what you did. Yeah, dead ass. But yeah, it's not crazy. That's nuts. Okay, <sighs> that was amazing and beautiful and very well written. And now I'm kind of like, I'm like embarrassed about no, how mine yours is going to go juicy. already. Mine is juicy, but like you just like, it's funny because like in this, um, in this duo of ours, I'm the writer and you're like the behind the scenes. And in real life, like... I, I just, I can't, I can't. I was waiting for you to say the swap, but you're just like, none of those. I was, no, I was going to say the swap, but I, I, I can't even form a sentence. Right. Me trying to be on a podcast. Um, oh, wait, you know what I should do though? What? I should cite my sources. You just did your books. There's more. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Sources. Let me just cite sources yeah. because, um, I didn't no, pull this important. out of my ass. I do actually. Oh, you weren't there? Yeah. You oh, know, this is my first hand account. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Let me bring out the How photos of you? me in a trench coat How and special glasses, like you? photograph next to these people with like a futuristic phone, like one of the. Did you, have you seen that picture? My, my before? Uh, yeah, I have just like my iPhone, just yeah. like up in the camera. Yeah. Yeah. God, I love it. And everyone's like time traveler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Time I I love that picture. Um. Okay. Sources. So I Wikipedia on MCA Records. Wikipedia on the history of cutout records. Uh, article. A Brief History of MCA Records by Roy Trankin in 2003. LA Times article, He's Our Satan, Mega Music Manager Irving Azoff. Still feared, still fighting. Um, <laughs> by Alex Papademus, uh, 2020. Article on Click Track, How the Mafia Used to Control the Music Industry by James Mearshaw from March of 2020. UPI Archives article written by Catherine Gewertz in 1987. A convicted tax evader who owns a New York... Yada, yada, yada. gave me a little ellipse at the end. Um, And then a Washington Post article, Making Music with the Mob by Richard Harrington in 1993. And a Modella.com article, MCA Music and the Mafia, Did the Justice Department Cut Reagan's Hollywood Pals a Break by Dan E. Moldea, 1988. Amazing. Wow. I've never been so happy to do a book report in my life. That was... You are the kid that loves doing homework, aren't you? I am the kid that loves doing homework. You're so good I at it. I love school. You're so good at it. <laughs> <laughs> there definitely was an instance in high school where someone took my paper and passed it around the class. 
I would be the one to start that chain. I feel like, let me see your fucking homework. Give it to me. If we were friends Mm -hmm. in high school, you would hate me because I... Would you ask to borrow paper and also borrow my homework? I borrow would, paper so you can I write think down since, my homework. Like, I think the earliest memory of me um, copying someone's homework is the third grade. And that I didn't... No. What do you even do in the third grade? You're coloring. No, you do like... Um, long division. Like, yeah, like division. Yeah, long shit. division. Like, not long grade. division. That's I did like long division gra- in the third grade. Yeah, I, Those years are so gone <laughs> in my mind. I don't know. How old are you? I, whatever. How old am I? How, what day is it? Um, <laughs> it's Friday. No, it is Saturday. Saturday. I'm so bad with these. Okay. I could do homework, but I don't know what day it is. Let's see. You got to pick your battles, I guess. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's get into this juice. I need to... We're going to pause for a second, actually. <laughs> we'll be back. And now we're back. And we're back. Had a little intermission. Got to... Had to do some things. People to see things to do. And now we're back a year later. <laughs> it takes us not only, things not only six years to um, even start a podcast, but six years to finish. Um, <laughs> today, I will be talking about Phil Spector. Wow, that took a little bit today. today I will, I'm, I'm so excited for this. Phil Spector and what a whack job. the murder of... Lana Clarkson. This man. So I'm going to start out with kind of what Phil Spector is kind of like known for. And then I'm going to get in a little bit into his And then background. you're going to tell me when to look up pictures of this. Yeah, that's going to come. That's going to come later. Okay. That's going to come later. Don't worry. I'm going to force everyone, not only you, but everyone involved to look up pictures. Everyone needs to look up a picture is, ASAP. So just actually, before I start, just a little backstory of how I came about this, this case or this kind of like him as a person. I took a forensics class in my high school. It was the first year of them offering it. And so the curriculum was pretty well thought out. We did at the end of the year, we kind of did some like random projects. And one of the one of the things was just kind of like pick a murder case almost and kind of do a quick little like a poster board about it. A little science fair yeah. trifold project. And yeah, so my teacher kind of gave us like a list of people to do. And for some reason, I thought Phil Spector was Richard Speck, who is they are not the same person. They are not the not same at all. <laughs> but I, so so I ended up picking him. So I was like, okay. oh, I I know. I like like I was just like, I know who who that is. No. As soon as I like get get on my little high school laptop, the pictures that showed up, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, what the fuck is going on? So um, you almost broke. The, the yeah. screen of and the Google Chrome. No, for real. And that was pictures. like that was like many years ago at this point. And I it like those pictures like stuck with me. It's chilling. They're chilling. <laughs> oh my god. I've waited. I've so, waited for some good chilling content. Yeah, I like told it her. Is almost I told her season. who I was doing and I told her do not do not Google. I do have not. waited. She told oh I like it's been a minute. I know this I know this case on a very surface level, yeah. like the need to knows because it's notorious. Yeah. But I, you know, when thinking about it, I'm like, I've never really, I've never seen a picture of this guy. Yeah. And she's like, absolutely. Do not look it up. Do not look this up. I need your <laughs> live reaction. I need it like a recorded reaction. Like, a recorded reaction of 
these photos and of the reveal. I was just called dramatic like five minutes ago, so they're about to be real dramatic reactions. <laughs> I was insulted a bit during our intermission, but it's okay. Hey, it's all love. Character it's all building, love, baby. Character building, like how my character is going to change after I see these pictures. So real. Very prepared. It's life altering. Not really. That's dramatic. Let me call my therapist real quick so I can just, oh. you know, get in some time. Do you know, me- think ahead from the trauma that this might cause. Put me in on that call. Please. <laughs> buddy therapy. All right. So <laughs> Phil Spector, his kind of legacy that he left in the music industry is called the Wall of Sound or also known as the specter sound. Mm. So Mm -hmm. as you know, like there are like a lot of different producers or even record labels as such as like Motown that have a very specific sound throughout their records, even like from artist to artist, like you can just kind of, it's like, you can tell. Yeah, you can tell. Wall of sound. So it's not in the meaning of like how you would use it, like a general, like, oh, this wall of sound. So it's not meaning like, oh, over distortion or all of this oversaturation, like a lot of noise. I'm meaning it. Yeah, I'm not meaning it in that way. So there is a distinction like a little bit, but I'll get into why it's called that. So it's categorized as like a production formula. I don't know if I would exactly use the word formula because that just seems, I don't know. I wouldn't use that word, but that's the word that came up a lot when I was looking into looking into this. So when music people get yeah. science Yeah, it's just like, I don't want to mm, use the word our formula. formula. Yeah, like I don't want to do that. I already know what the people say and that look like. <laughs> and everyone else in this industry do too. And if you mm-hmm. don't, I promise you also do. Yeah, you do. You know. You know when you see it. It's like that kid from um, Polar Express. Yes. Where it's exactly. like, you know what kind of train this is? Exactly. He's like, this wall of sound production wall formula. Wall of sound formula. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's a magic trick. We're just being no, super bullies. I love sound it. formula. Exactly. So this like production, I'm going to just use the word technique from now on. Don't know why I use the word formula. I love that. This production technique utilized like very large ensembles in the recording studio. And when I say like large ensembles, he not only had like the typical band, strings, other like percussive instruments, guitars, that kind of thing. A really big part of this technique is that he would have multiple instruments playing the exact same line. So for example, he would have a guitar, a harpsichord, and like the violins playing the exact same line. They would kind of mix it in a way where if you're listening to the full recording, you would not be able to just like distinguish all of these different instruments, like pick it out. You hear it and it does kind of give like a depth to these like lines. It's not exactly like the most complicated. It's not like a million instruments playing all these different things. It kind of gives like a simple fullness to. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Because you get the umph without all the writing. Right. Right. And and it's not even. Yeah, exactly. Usually like the groups would be three to four times bigger than typical recording session groups ensembles. How, how much would you say, like, in, like, a typical group of a recording session, how many people you say in the studio like, at once? Like, like for, for, like, like mo- for, like, pop or, pop like, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you probably have 
you know, your drummer, mm-hmm. your lead vocalist, maybe background vocalist, but yeah. instruments, like two guitars, a bass, maybe a key or two, like keyboards. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's basically what you see on stage live. Right. Except there's, you know, obviously other techniques used behind the scenes for a recording, but the people are the same amount usually. Yeah. Three to four times bigger. And this would be for every single session that they did. He was working with a lot of musicians. They got the bucks for that. They got the bucks. Um, and I'll go into... I'll go into his record labels and all that. Another interesting thing about kind of this wall of sound is that Phil Spector was a, he was like a hater of stereo recordings. And when I say stereo, I mean like it's left and right. You hear it kind of all around instead of just mono where it's just kind of in the middle, right all in the middle. An interesting thing about that, these ginormous sessions and recordings would transfer really well onto records and through jukeboxes and through radios. I think that kind of cemented like, I'm gonna keep doing this. This is it. This is my thing. And I don't think he necessarily made this up, but he definitely brought it into the general public's right. like, and knowledge. Well, and like, I would assume with, you know, the bands he was working with and right. their popularity, like the sound that like the technique he was using yeah. also helped their sound. Exactly. So it's like because they were popular, his technique became popular. He's probably able to coin it a lot easier. Yeah. I don't know if it's all of the Beach Boys or a few of them, but I know that they also were kind of not a big fan of stereo recording. And I think they utilized the wall of sound or the Spectre sound in some of their recordings, not necessarily with him, but they kind of like influenced a little bit of what they were doing. Another like kind of more specific thing uh, where his influence slide in that sense was Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. That definitely is like a more Yeah. Modern, when I think yeah. of him, I think of Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. That's like exactly. one of the like top people that comes to mind. Yeah. A little bit about Phil. Yeah, let's let's talk about this weirdo. And I just want to kind of clarify before I really get into like his background that I kind of hate that I have to like talk about him so much because he is such a fucking freak. Like he's yeah. a freak, but he did have a very large impact on the music industry That's and did work thing. with quite a few very notable, notable it's the like most musicians. Troubling people that making history yeah. and get away with it because they made history. It's yeah. like it's the weird balance that this industry yeah. is okay with. Yeah. So we're just gonna we're just gonna talk about it. That's yeah. fine. So anyway, a little bit about our boy Phil. Uh, he was born in the Bronx in December, New Yorker. Uh, in 1939, he moved to LA with his family in 1953 after his father committed suicide. I didn't just put that in there just for yeah, that's important to okay. like some other details here. So in high school, him and three of his friends, he went to school in LA, him and three of his friends, uh, Marshall Lieb, Harvey Goldstein, and Annette Kleinbard formed the band The Teddy Bears. The Teddy Bears. Yeah, that was the band name. Kind of amazing. I want that band name, but now it's I'm just thinking of a bunch of like Build-A-Bear bears just like dancing around. No, no, no. (laughs) I know. I know that's not it whatsoever. (laughs) 
That's where my brain yeah. goes. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, he formed this band, like, right kind of as he was really getting into, like, learning guitar and, like, kind of, like, being more into music. And at this time, he was also hanging around Gold Star Records, where Sam Ross, sorry, Stan Ross, he was a co-owner of Gold Star Records. Okay. He was kind of mentoring him in music production and is, like, said to have, like, a pretty big influence on his sound and his like production style yeah around there like they recorded their first song and that landed them a deal at Ayers Records oh okay the teddy bears yeah but they they didn't really stay together for too long they did release a few other things it wasn't anything nothing that stuck nothing really yeah so they kind of just like dissipated so in 1961, he was kind of a little more established. He had these like musical connections. He formed Phillies Records. And that he did. Yes. Filled it. Okay. And that was with uh, Lester Sill, also another kind of like bigger guy in the industry or up and up and coming huge guy in the industry. Lester did only stay for a few years in that industry. He is like quoted to saying like Phil was like a very hard man to not only be in business with, but just like to be around. So so fluffy teddy bear. No. Hard to be around teddy bear. Yeah. During this time at his record company, he worked with, and kind of like brought up to fame a lot of these artists or groups uh, such as the Ronettes, um, the Crystals, Kanye Francis, Ruth Brown, and Laverne Baker, mm. just to name a few. Over the time, he started getting kind of more regular session musicians. So those session musicians that kind of stuck with him for like a period of time were known as the Wrecking Crew. Uh, and that... for our like listeners that don't know what session musicians Oh yeah, sorry. Are. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> you want to say? Oh, I could say it. Session yeah. musicians are just like musicians that the record company pays to play on like multiple records. You have like the main like vocalist that might be the most popular selling artist, but it's like you don't really know their band. That's like a session musician and they are they still exist yeah and are very much alive and we very much need them but oh totally back in the day they had like cooler names like the wrecking, yeah, the crew. wrecking crew like i know those oh. like muscle shoals like down in the south yeah exactly have, like very like these like groups of people that would just like stay together yeah and they have like iconic grooves and sound and by default the record labels and exactly. these artists also had that sound it was really great but yeah. I really like the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew, amazing. Like That's I such a fun name. So the Wrecking Crew consisted of uh Hall or Hal, Blaine, um, Steve Douglas, Carol Kay, uh, Glenn Campbell, and Leon Russell. I don't know if there's more, but those are the only names that I saw okay. when I was looking That's into this. Um, but there might be more. Spectre also worked with a lot of co-writing teams. I don't know necessarily the amount of like co-writing that he did with these teams. But he did get credits on those compositions. Yeah, the writing credits. So some of the co-writing teams included Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, and Gary Goffin and Carol King. So pretty like yeah, Carol King. Yeah, Yeah, like pretty like pretty good songwriters, like to say the least. So Spectre's final signing to uh, Philly's record was the iconic husband and wife team of Ike and Tina Turner in 1966 recording their hit River Deep Mountain High. Wow. Which is... That was the last one to his own record label. Yeah, that was like his final, like, let's get this out there 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. So after that, like he did continue working at that record or with that record label, but he, he wasn't seeing a lot of like commercial success. He kind of had peaked almost like, um, with that label. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of like lost enthusiasm for his own label and almost like the whole recording industry. Like he, he was a little down the dumps about it so he kind of became like a recluse that's a word that i kept seeing like he was very withdrawn like he was kind of trying to shy away from the public eye around that time he married veronica ronnie bennett the lead singer of the ronettes in 1968 and i will get back to her because she has a lot to say about phil Spector as well important things to say important things i bet yeah but you can imagine the power dynamic and I, of the owner of your record label. Yeah. Who brought you to fame. Mm-hmm. And probably yeah. weighs that over you every second of every day. Yeah. And just cuckoo nut job. Um, anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just cuckoo bananas. That's um, fine. He did kind of like after this period of time, like being out of the public eye, he kind of came back into the industry working with the Beatles and their prospective solo careers. Mm -hmm. So he did have a hand like kind of in some pretty big songs, I will say, and like the whole like Let It Be album and some of their solo career stuff. Yeah, that's big. Not to shy away from that Beatles stuff, but Mm -hmm. isn't it funny how very successful people in the industry, they're like, oh, I'm not successful. I'm recluse. Looks like I can find love now. (laughs) Looks like I can get married and settle down now. That is so funny to me. Don't even get me started with this, folks. (laughs) Holy moly. They're like, "Mm, not successful. I guess that means I have to start a family. Yeah, whatever. Lord. Okay. Anyway, moving on. The Beatles. I'm not really going to go too much into like his work with the Beatles because that's kind of like its own thing. Like I obviously imagine. the Beatles have an insane discography and like we just, all know it, it. it. It's just known that Phil had like a Phil was with them. He that's was all with we them at that time know. where they were like let it be. Yeah, that's big. <laughs> Period. So um <laughs> and that was like around late 60s, early 70s. So in 74 he established the Warner Spector record label. So now he's hopped onto a new record record label okay and that record label worked with like Cher Harry Nielsen Dion and the Ramones yeah yeah like again he's just like working with these big time yeah big time artists again he kind of like as the 70s progressed like the mid 70s the later 70s he kind of seemed to withdraw a little more yeah and at once this those time, people had their run exactly and I think it didn't really exclusively say this in anything that I was reading, but it just seemed that like his passion for the music that he was doing with these like artists and the labels, like as soon as they weren't commercially accepted, he quote unquote like lost interest. And yeah, that's like, so funny. It's that's like, just like really odd to me, and I don't really know. It's like, kind of infuriating because it's like, oh, yeah, like I work with these. He's done amazing work, roster. but he's like, and I'm only naming like some. Like I, yeah. we would be here for hours. But the if fact that he's like only you know measuring his success by like actual like commercial success right with legendary yeah people like the fact that that takes away oh that's infuriating to me i hate that and it's it's still like that today it's like if you're not yeah making the money off of it it's like not useful it's not worth it like you know the list goes on it's and like again i didn't really read too much in like the thought process behind him because like honestly reading about him is just like so it's just like a lot it's really dense like it's tiring like 
But anyway, so around this time, I think a significant reason for his like withdrawal the second time in like the mid 70s, a lot of people attribute it to a serious car accident that he was in um, where he was basically thrown through the windshield of his car in like in a car accident in Hollywood. So obviously like severe head trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. So he suffered serious head injuries, which he needed to get several hours of surgery, almost 300 to 400 stitches on his face and more than 400 stitches on the back of his head alone. Damn. So fucked. Like your brain is mush. Like your brain might've been out of your head at that point. Maybe that's where some of the stitches went. Yeah. The brain. Am I allowed to look up this guy? Not yet. Oh uh, we'll get God. there. Even after this? No, we'll get there. Ooh. That's not even like, the, that's <laughs> not even the pictures I'm talking about. Oh no. So that's just kind of like a very, I'm dipping my toes in. This is dipping. Oh, this is hunty. just like dipping on like his, how he was like in the yeah. music industry, yeah. like, or how his impact, his like Got work it. that he did. There's obviously like a lot of names that I'm not naming and songs that I'm not yeah. naming. I think just what you covered yeah, is, like, that's effective. It's a lot. We get the point. So, <laughs> so here I wrote, down as the next topic was history of violence and weirdoness, which I think describes what a great chapter. It's a good chapter. All right, class, turn to history of violence and weirdoness on page page two. Page We're already two. there. He's already a weirdo. Page yeah. two. <laughs> so to get kind of more into that, we're gonna go back to our girl Ronnie. In the articles about this specifically, they kept naming her Ronnie Spector. That just feels wrong to me. I know she was like legally married to him. I don't want to call her Ronnie Spector, so I'm just not going to. So she has, I have to say, claimed. She has claimed that Spector showed her a gold coffin with a glass on top in his basement and promised to kill and display her should she ever choose to leave him. And this is during the time of their marriage. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> in the late 60s, reportedly, he kept her locked inside the mansion. She claimed he hid her shoes, didn't want her to go outside, kept the house dark. He didn't want anyone to see him. What neighborhood were they in? Um, like, what area I think of LA? At this, I'm not exactly sure at this point if this is where he was living, but they were in like, uh, where is it called? Hold on, let me see. Because I'd like imagine like when he's like, oh, I want to keep her locked inside. Like, I mean, all the yeah. nice neighborhoods here in L.A. are so far removed from city life. You have to take a car. Yeah, that's so it's like, what true. could she do? Like go outside and like walk around the neighborhood, you know, like that's so insane. And no, he was like, you even don't even get so, to go outside. Yeah, like he would take her shoes like yeah. just to make her not go Yeah, outside. just like, like control. Yeah, like super controlling. His son also, he had he had some children. Mm-hmm. Um, some adopted, some not. His son later also claimed that he was he was kept locked inside his room with a pot in the corner to be used as a toilet. So oh my just gosh. like super. Have we been transported up. back to the medieval times? Like yeah. what is happening? Thank God Ronnie uh, filed for divorce in 1972. Okay. So didn't last too too long, but too how long, long was their marriage in total? Sixty eight. Okay, so like... So it was only like four years. Four years. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say short-lived. It was short-lived, but she still went through all of that. She, yeah, the fact that she stayed four years knowing about I, the coffin. And so, so much so, more, you goodness. know, like, again, like, I'm really... There's a lot. She has... She actually put out, like, a book or... And okay. she, there's a lot of articles that, like, she's quoted with saying a lot of this stuff and, like, goes really into detail about okay. their relationship okay. and their dynamic. And it's just... It's terrible. And I feel very 
very sorry for her, but I'm really glad that she got out there. Yeah, like she, thank goodness. Yeah, so like in her book that she wrote about her experiences going through all of this, it's quoted, she said, I can only say that when I left in the early 70s, I knew that if I didn't leave at that time, I was going to die there. And that I think that's all you need yeah, to know. I think that really says it. It says it all. Like, terrifying situation terrifying. oh with powerful people yeah just really scary into we're just gonna skip a little bit in time 2007 mm-hmm. ronnie uh also discussed her ronette's much delayed entry into the rock and roll hall of fame she's quoted as saying he wrote the hall of fame to tell them not to put me in he did everything he could to stop me he's bitter that i left him He wants everyone to think that he's the mastermind. He thought everything was because of him. I hate men. And see, this is why... Men like that. I was going to say, I hate men. I'll just leave it there. Yeah. But that is just... And that still exists today, which drives me insane. Like it's scary, and like he obviously, yeah, he was so like power, control, hungry, and like greedy, and like thought that he was he lived for the commercialism yeah. of all of it. Yeah, and like just glossing over the fact that they're just like amazing musicians. You know what I mean? Absolutely, like, who deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, and the fact that no matter like, who they were associated with, right? And I don't know if it's really, I don't know if that's like confirmed, like why they weren't inducted. Sooner. Mm. Um, he obvi- yeah, like he obviously had like a huge, he had a hand in, ev- in a lot of things, you know? He had a huge hand in the industry and control on a lot of things. Right. And I wouldn't be surprised. A lot of people described him, a lot of people that worked with him, even like really famous people that worked with him, described him as being a gun lover. And just the thought of Mm-mm. musicians in the studio just like Mm-mm. noticing that is so scary. Anyway. Very um, close quarters. Yeah. I want to be comfortable with people and vulnerable creative state. And then yeah. that comes up. Gun lover. He discharged a firearm while in the studio with John Lennon You're during joking. the recording of his cover album, Rock and Roll. I don't want to say that's like ironic and foreshadowing anything, but that is very insane. Really like crazy. what? With gunshot, John Lennon. Yeah. If you know anything about history. Yeah, I didn't even put that that together. Put two and two together. Oh my God. But that's crazy. He also placed a loaded pistol at Leonard Cohen's head during the sessions for Death of a Ladies' Man. Well, yeah, Ladies' Man was about to die with a pistol against his head. I wonder if that's what inspired. I don't even know. Like, just like. Just terrible. Oh, Too so, many coincidences. I yeah. hate all this. He also um, forced D.D. Ramon to play the bass guitar to his, like, specifications at gunpoint. Cohen told uh, Rolling Stone magazine that in 1978 that Phil couldn't resist annihilating me. I don't think he can tolerate any other shadows in his darkness. Which is that's such a spooky quote. Yeah, that's in the Rolling Stones. Jeez. Yeah. That is spooky. Yeah, like what? Mm-hmm. That's layered. As that interview, I would have been like, do you want to go into that a little bit maybe? Yeah. Do you want to do the public a favor real quick? No, we're just going to leave it at really shadows of darkness. Love it. The Ramones also reportedly had to play the same opening chord to the song Rock and Roll High School for eight hours straight. This went from crazy recording producer to crazy whiplash high school band director. But like on steroids. Oh my goodness. So years later, Johnny Ramone described Spectre as, quote, a little man with lifts in his shoes, the wig on top of his head, and four guns. What is it with short men in this business? (laughs) (laughs) Literally... 
the, the oh, oh my goodness little what is Sorry. it little shoes little men lifted With shoes shoes yeah so yeah that's just kind of like the background that's not even again the half of that's just not like even the crazy shit that's that not even the craziest would, shit he's done that's not even why we're here and listening not that's even just, why we're here that's, that's just, just this is who we're dealing with li- this is just a little character background we're gonna kind of switch over a little pivot a tad and talk about our girl lana clarkson let's talk about her lana clarkson was born in long beach california she's lived in california her whole life her acting debut her screen debut i should say was a role in uh, fast times at ridgemont high have you seen that i don't think i've seen that one but i know the name like it's a pretty yeah i was about to say it's a i don't think i've ever seen it though she also appeared i think as like more of a minor role in scarface Yes, that I do know. But a lot of the movies that she starred in, they're described as sword and sorcery films. That kind of gives me a medieval vibe. I haven't really seen a lot of things that she's in. Yeah, like kind of fantasy. Some of them were like a little sci-fi too. Which I mean, was becoming a big thing at the time. Sure, yeah, totally. A little about her, like in the 1980s, she volunteered weekly at the AIDS charity Project Angel Food, which delivers food for those in Los Angeles disabled by HIV or AIDS. And as you probably know, in the 80s, people were terrified of AIDS, HIV, and just... Just like Highly it was stigmatized. demonized. Yeah, it was a terrible time. And for a, like a more well-known person to be actively like doing that is, is a very big deal. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Her career did begin to stall when she was around early 30s. She did sort like look for alternative sources of income because she wasn't really making a living off of her acting career at that point. So she was operating her own website. She sold autographed photos and DVDs of her films. She also communicated directly to her fans on a message board, which I think is just like a sweet detail. I think that's cute. Yeah. And it takes time too. And it's just, that's nice. It reminds me of that app Cameo Mm. where like, I guess it's not really the same, but like, it's nice. (laughs) Like, I guess it's not the same at all. It's not the same really. But yeah, reaching out to, you know, connecting to your fans and stuff like that. And just like on that kind of more intimate level. You bring down the celebrity aspect and you're like, this is just like a person who cares that they're getting support from, you know, people they don't know. Yeah, totally. Showing that gratitude. Exactly. It's awesome. I kind of, I just wanted to add those details because she just really did seem like a very kind, genuine And it always is. It's always the best yeah. women that this stuff happens to, and it's heartbreaking. She, like, a lot of these movies, she was kind of, like, a character actress in the way where she was playing the lusty woman, mm. like, the seductive kind of yes. thing. Or, just in uh, those times, a woman. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> That's um, all we are, Liz. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, um... It was stated that her fondest desire was to be cast as like a comedic actress or perform as a comedian. She really did want to like start diving into that. The world loves funny girls until they're actually funny. That's very true. She was only in her mid 30s at this point. She was young. young. Like she was really young. And she really could have dove into that more, you know. Absolutely. If she was given the chance. Around this time, in uh, early January in 2003, she took a part-time job at the House of Blues in West Hollywood. Mm, Um, We know the one. Yeah. 
When I was reading about Lana Clarkson and Phil Spector's relationship Mm -hmm. or like how they really knew each other, I did not find a lot. It didn't really seem relevant, I guess. No one really seemed to mention it. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are articles that I just didn't look through hard enough. I didn't see anything. Well, this was just like, oh, they were like friends or like something like that. Like they knew each other for a long time. Like, I don't really know. It was like wrong place, wrong time. Kind of. So here, let me get into it. Yeah. That was in January 2003 where she started working there. House of Blues. House of Blues. That's where I assume that they came into contact Mm because House of Blues, if people don't know, I think people know. It's a music venue. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a restaurant bar doubles as a music venue. It's it's a nice venue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like in every major city, I think. Yeah. Same right. with like the Hard Rock Cafe. Yeah, like it's same... like in that same realm. So on February 3rd, 2003, Clarkson and Spectre left the House of Blues together in Spectre's limousine and drove to his mansion. They went inside while his driver waited outside in the car. Mm. After about an hour, or I saw like different times, averaging about an hour, the driver heard a gunshot from inside. So the driver kind of started going inside he's like what the fuck's going yeah, on like what just happened before he could make it even inside specter exited his house through the back door with a gun and he allegedly said i think i killed somebody you don't say phil jeez so this short is man like- with four guns over here <laughs> So it's like a tiny side note. It'll be more relevant in a bit. His lawyer, when he eventually got prosecuted for this, his lawyer argued that that comment should be thrown out because he was apparently suffering from prescription drug withdrawals at the time. And I have to assume that's from like his accident maybe or something. Or maybe he just got like addicted that way or he's just like... Honestly, could be either. 50-50, it's fair game. I don't even know if I believe that. He was just like... The word that kept popping up anytime you look up Phil Spector is eccentric. That's always the word people use. Eccentric. It's like so much more evil than that, in my opinion. Yeah, like, absolutely. Cr- That's just like an admission of guilt. Yeah. Spectre's driver eventually called 911. By the time the ambulance got there, she was pronounced dead on the scene. So that same day, Spectre was arrested on suspicion of murder. So we're skipping to November. That was in February. Okay. So he's been... So- He's been like in and out of jail. He was like making bail, making bail. Uh, okay. They're like, just trying to gather up evidence for this Sitting case. in a cell, rotting. Right. No. Bail, One would hope. Of course. On November 20th, 2003, Spectre was, he was indicted for Clarkson's murder. In September 2004, he was ordered to stand in trial in Los Angeles. So that's okay. where this story begins. Spectre had stated that Lana had committed suicide. Mm. Yeah. Like an accidental suicide. And like, was that kind like of the like, main argument of the defense? Was kind, that- yeah so like he was saying oh she was just playing with my gun like put it in her mouth kind of thing yeah just jokingly yeah. you know do that all so the like, time it's like that's, like he's, when i he's see saying, a gun that's the first place i want to put it yeah right Prior to and during the first trial, Spector went through uh, at least three sets of attorneys. The first being defense attorney Robert Shapiro. (laughs) In case you're not familiar (laughs) with Robert Shapiro. You're joking. Oh, I'm not. Actually, later when Robert Shapiro is fired by Spectre, Spectre tries to sue him for almost a million dollars. And then again, he tries to sue him again for, quote, not being prepared for his trial, even though he didn't. Yeah. Kooky. Robbie. I know. Robbie. (laughs) Come on. So. um, Oh, no. Yeah. Shapiro was later replaced by Leslie Abrinson. Nope. That's not right. And uh, Marsha Morrissey. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, girl. Sorry, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> they were also fired. They, in turn, were later replaced by Bruce Cutler. In case you're not familiar with him, kind of ties into yours, he was the former longtime lawyer of New York City mafia boss John Gotti. <gasps> oh, my goodness. And he was at the head of the Gambino family where Pacella was from. Yo! Yeah. I freaking everything is connected. I know. I can't believe this. Crazy. Small industry. But he later left the defense in about late August 2007, claiming a, quote, difference in opinion between Mr. Specter and me on strategy. He has now gone through okay. at least three sets of attorneys. Yeah, that's insane. The first trial, the three first sets of trial. attorney. Yeah. yeah. And this is like during the trial. Oh, yeah. He left. So Linda Kenny Baden then became the lead lawyer for closing arguments. Craziness. Teamwork. It's like a yeah. class project. Yeah. So in this first trial. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Let's just gather up all the lawyers we know and no, put them in our project together. How are we going to defend this man? It takes a village. Know. When I think of defense lawyers, I don't want to make a general statement about defense lawyers, but like in true crime, when you're hearing about true crime things, you'll hear these defense lawyers work for murderers insane murderer like yeah. serial killers and they'll have yeah. to defend them and they won't work with specter because he's yeah. deranged like, yeah well you think of the most notorious serial killers like the, the that comparison just, i don't know why that just like says a lot to me that he had to go through that many defense yeah, attorneys well specter gives me manson vibes yeah like, he's just like a lot okay so i'm gonna tell you a little bit of, i'm gonna run you through the first trial okay the charge that he was given was second degree murder mm-hmm. if he that's had one that's not meditative right Right. right. First so, degree is like when you plan. And yeah. Then second first is degree just, is premeditated. Yeah. Second degree is not premeditated, right. but still murder with intent. Yeah. Yeah. And then manslaughter is not intent, but you still killed. Yeah. If he was convicted on this charge, he would have received 15 to life and another 10 years automatically added since the crime included a gun. I didn't know that was a thing. I think it's now just added in automatically. I think that was just like specified in this. Right. I've heard it's like, so many times it's, where it's like now the 25, 25 to life. To life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And it's because the gun is involved yeah 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 during his trial he remained like free he wasn't in jail uh his one million dollar bail um while awaiting trial it was scheduled to begin uh, april 24th in 2006 and the court judge was superior court judge larry paul fiddler he's important here so it was scheduled to begin april 24th 2006 it had been postponed several times first to january 16th 2007 then to march 5th and finally to march 19th a year later yeah so he, and he's just sitting he's just out and about like yeah. he's not he's not in jail going to grocery he's stores at, yeah. going to coffee shops yeah. yelling at more people you know I don't know maybe he was like still doing that recluse shit or whatever but I don't fucking care like go to jail anyway go to jail <laughs> I'm going to jail yeah so February 16th, 2007, Judge Fiddler stated that he would allow Spectre's trial to be televised. That was we like, love that. Yeah. I bet Spectre loves the commercial value of that. Yeah. God. What do you think about televised, televised like murder trials? Because Bundy was the first, I believe. Was it the first? Yeah, that was the first time. That's why it was such a big deal. That's why so many girls thought he was so hot yeah, because they saw yeah. him mm-hmm. in person. They're like, oh, he's so charming, like on television. Yeah. I just think even if the jury's sequestered, it's 
so it's really hard to cap the press. It really is, especially nowadays. And even in oh, 2007, yeah. tabloids were running amok. Cell phones like, existed, truly, and that's cell all phones we existed, need. Social media existed. The internet. The internet. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it because, on one hand, I like watching. Oh, it's the entertaining. Footage from this and stuff. of course, if it's someone doing these crazy things, I would want to know the right. outcome. I feel like that's in the general interest of everyone. But as far I, as like I having a jury, affect, I think it affects like the trial the justice. Itself. Yeah, even no, if, that makes sense. Again, I even if the, that. the jury is sequestered, like even just to the public eye, it affects everything. Have you ever seen that series on Netflix, um, Trial by Media? You should watch it. If not, no. it's really, really good. Okay, yeah, I definitely. It's need really to. good. Honestly, it's probably already on my list, and I don't even know about it. Yeah, you should definitely watch it. In this statement, he also did say that he would reverse that, not allow the media in there if they abused that access. So mm. he was kind of like no bullshit like do not want this televised but you slip up it's gone yeah he was on top of that at least he was having tight control over that okay a list of possible witnesses shown to prospective jurors included longtime specter audio associates hal blaine and uh, nina tempo the limo driver i realized i never said his name he's kind of important in this case adriano de souza was the limo driver was the limo driver yeah okay and writer and beats the trial began april 25th 2007 so this is now what a few years after the murder mm-hmm. so terrible how long this process has yeah to how take, long the turnaround you know? is not even just in this case just in general it's just yeah, like it's... that's it's too slow it's too slow too slow this trial was like surrounded by controversy obviously and that's kind of why i was asking how you thought about it being presented to the media in this way especially for someone that's like and we people find... were really talking about it like yeah this was like a big, these big links deal. to and you think about i mean you think about Beatles and like you know the mm-hmm. other people that he's linked to and I mean music for some people that's like their life and their personality and they get very defensive about anything so it's like again that's the double-edged sword is like you have these really powerful people in the music industry that do these terrible things the good things that they you know they quote-unquote do yeah it impacts the lives yeah. of so many people to the point where they're like this man could do no wrong and exactly. then you have the media and you know everyone else's opinion besides you know the actual like the only two that's really that what matter? it is. Everyone just kind of giving their opinion when it's not yeah. really like, we don't need your opinion. That's, That's literally us everything. right now. We're like, <laughs> yeah, literally, you know, it's, it's what we're doing right now. Anyways, <laughs> we're not on trial here. We're not on trial. So one of like the big controversies in this case was forensic scientist Henry Lee. If you've ever listened to any murder podcast, ever seen a forensic files, anything really true crime related, you've probably yeah. heard of Henry Lee. He's, Henry. I, would, I would say he's probably the most famous or well-known forensic scientist. He's been involved in over 8,000 murder cases. Yeah, which is or, like, insane. Just criminal but cases. it's also like he was a part of, you know, when serial killers started to be calling serial Serial killers and he was a big deal. He he is a big deal, and so. He was involved in the OJ trial, in John Bonet, the staircase murder, mm. and Helicrafts, which was the first ever episode of Forensic Files, Helicrafts. I think that was one of the, if not the first conviction, uh, murder conviction without a body, mm. which is crazy. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Um, but he's in this time and also in kind of recent years, he's been surrounded by a lot.
lot of controversy. People are accusing him, and in this case specifically, of hiding crucial evidence that could prove Spectre's guilt. And he obviously denies these claims, and I don't really know exactly the details of like on what grounds, you know? Okay. Like people didn't really get specific about why they accused him of that. He has been accused of similar things in other pretty big cases. A coroner who examined Clarkson's body concluded that the bruising on her tongue mm -hmm. indicated that the gun was shoved in her mouth. I'm I was just about to say, like, like, what was the fatal wound? It, it, was, a it was a gunshot, gunshot to the mouth. Through the back of her skull, mm -hmm. I'm assuming. Yeah, sorry, I didn't want to get too graphic with it, but obviously here I am. That's just, like, good because now we're, like, can understand, like, what forensic yeah. evidence was disputed. Right, right. But the defense DNA expert also stated that only Clarkson's DNA was found on the handgun, which did aid his defense in that she, so that was a like, it was an accidental was... or whatever suicide. I find that odd. Like, did she have a gun? I don't know. Yeah. Like, well, do you, and it's also, you know, was it not his gun? In O.J. Simpson trial yeah. is an indicator of anything. People have gloves. Yeah. Gloves don't it's just, do I, DNA. I think that's not exactly, for lack of a better term, like a smoking gun, like he's innocent. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, but they also did find none of Spectre's DNA under Clarkson's fingernails. Oh, it's like no defense wounds. Yeah, like not really any defense wounds. And the prosecution was kind of arguing that Clarkson and Spectre, there was like a struggle before the shot. So again, I don't know. He was a very scary man. And like he obviously had a lot of power and control and i'm sure in that situation do you know what it, a lot of aggression and he loved guns so let's just think and about has, that and has artists on the record yeah being like he's pointed it at me for minute things for playing and like, the bass exactly like genuinely i think that head injury has like a lot to do with probably his processing yeah. of you know his actions which makes sense yeah. pre his head injury he was kooky yeah like, you know he was doing that stuff to his wife before he flew out the windshield of a car right so that probably didn't make anything in his frontal lobe better. Yeah. In September, so April to September, mm -hmm. the jury was split 7-5. I don't think it was ever released what those numbers were, like guilty or not, whatever. Uh, but they were split. Judge Fiddler stated that he would consider whether or not the charge of involuntary manslaughter would fit the profile of this case, so he kind of dismissed the jury. They took a few days to kind of mull that over, but then ultimately decided that that wasn't the route that they were going to go. Yeah, no. So September 26th, the jury stated that they could not reach a verdict and the jurors announced a deadlock of uh 10 guilty and two not guilty um so judge fiddler then declared a mistrial for the murder case against phil specter and this was september 26 2007 so then we're gonna skip less than a month october 3rd 2007 the judge and lawyers met on october 3rd 2007 to discuss future proceedings and they confirmed that they were preparing to retry specter okay. immediately so second trial like they now. were ready they were yeah. like we need to get him in early december of that same year another lawyer was brought on to be specter's attorney um and had proposed that the retrial begin in like september of 2008 all of the remaining members of specter's previous defense team in this last trial had either resigned or been dismissed from the mistrial great so now yeah. he's on to like is this his fourth or his fifth i don't even know at this point like i've lost count <laughs> Yeah, so Ballpark four, <laughs> yeah, fifth literally attorney got it around this time as well. Spectre and like his attorneys were trying to get Judge Fiddler off 
the case. Like, they didn't want him to be the judge for this retrial. Ultimately, the state refused to order an appointment of a neutral judge to determine whether or not he should be removed from the retrial. So Fiddler previously refused to remove himself from the retrial. So I mean, I can, like, understand why they would want a new judge. That makes sense. I guess so, but also it's like... Like, fresh trial, new jury, new judge. Yeah, Their argument was because he showed bias, like, against Spectre, which I don't know if I exactly saw in a lot of the court documents that I was Mm -hmm. reading. I think he was just a no-bullshit kind of guy. Yeah. The jury selection began in October of 2008. From December Um, of 2007 being like, we were ready to go. Yeah. And then ready to go means October of the next year. Yeah. It's hard. I think a lot of that was because of them trying to... The drama of finding a new judge. I think so. In February of 2009, the jury for this new trial, for the second trial, visited Spectre's home for about an hour and inspected the crime scene. And they came back to the judge with a bunch of questions, which I think is kind of common. It's like a thing that people, that they do in like big cases. I think they did the same thing at OJ's house. I think so too. Right? Yeah, they definitely did. They definitely went to the property and like saw, you know, the steps Mm -hmm. and the inside and all that stuff yeah yeah there's not like too much about this case about this second trial i mean i'm sorry but before i end i do need you to look actually i'm just gonna show you i am gonna show you this during... is where i get to see the crazy yeah pictures. this is where you get to see the I've crazy been pictures for so long and now i finally yeah get to be relieved during his trials he went through some interesting looks I will say. He, again, was an eccentric man, obviously. I think he just wanted to make a statement. I'm not exactly sure what the statement is. Um, but it's commercialism, just... baby. He was like, but was the second trial televised? I think so. Okay, so all of his trials were televised. So I'm just going to take you through the pictures okay. that we have here. So this is Phil Spector, 2003. Okay. He's in court, 2004. He looks like... um. Hold on. Oh my god. Can you zoom in on that, please? Yeah, so oh. for the people not um, can looking you right zoom now. zoom in even more? I like, don't I need. To. I'm oh, wow. This is the first picture I saw of him. <laughs> so for those not able to see, he just continually over the course of these trials got not only more interactive with the cameras, he tried on a lot of different hairstyles via wig we just went from like via wigs he's got a big curly one he's got a little bowl cut moment he's got a bowl cut yeah he's he looks like owen wilson what's an owen wilson haircut yo um wow yeah so yeah wow wow so um he's also getting more like ghoulish like he looks like a ghoul like he's getting now he's going into like this isn't a phase mom but like blonde almost just whoa like what just happened yeah like so he's getting like really frail keep in mind this is like he has wigs on that are meant for like teenage boys and like early 20s and he is walking corpse yeah looking yeah so he's got this like, crazy wig. He's got like a big brown what? moment. It looks photoshopped. It is does what it look looks. photoshopped. He's got like a little mullet. And then he's got some kind of crazier ones. Oh like my. he obviously isn't taking care of himself because over the course of these like photos, he looks what like a what? ghoul. And then we get what to his, is that? his official mugshot where Alyssa. his eyes are wider than you will ever see anyone's eyes. And he is looking up at the camera with a wig that is half his bangs are like 
I don't even know what's going on with the okay, bangs wait. here. You know what this looks like to me? You know the scene at the end of the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark where that guy is melting his yeah. face is melting <laughs> off? And the eyeballs just just roll and yes. then melt off, but all that's the good, flesh is gone, that's and it's a just good the eyeballs that are left. Yeah, that that's that's what I'm gonna have to work through with my therapist this week. Is this photo? That's that's the photo that stuck with me. This mugshot photo. So this. And was, then what is he doing with his mouth? I don't know. I he is yeah. it is it duck face? Is so, it fish lips? Is it? It's just like. It's like yeah. So this this photo was um, kind of to go back to this trial. <laughs> he. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Sorry. We're back. I'm sorry. That might just like killed all my brain cells right there. Yeah. So in March, the case went to the jury. They deliberated until April, and the jury returned with a guilty verdict, convicting uh, Specter of second degree murder. It took one month for of them deliberating. Wow. I think just to go over all of the evidence. And Probably. obviously, because it was a retrial, I think they kind of had to do a little more due diligence. And yeah, maybe absolutely. there was also some hangups in there, you know, like how there was for the first trial. Right. He was also found guilty for using a firearm in the commission of a crime. He was immediately taken into custody and was formally sentenced on May 29th to 19 to life in California State Prison. He would have been 88 years old before becoming eligible for parole, but he died in 2021 that's right mm-hmm. last year folks yep. i forgot about that yes so Holy that God. is my kooky kooky story wait do we want to tell them how he died i don't care <laughs> he died i'm happy he's dead i do not care mm, you are dead you are dead <laughs> you are dead <laughs> beep I... boop 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 bop you are dead. Yeah, literally. So yeah, that is Phil Spector, his impact on the music industry and the very tragic and far too early death of Lana Clarkson. Yeah, Lana Clarkson. Really Honestly, sad we stuff. needed another comedic female actress in yeah. this world. That's like the only thing. It's just that's sad like, she didn't really get to have a chance to like no. kind of explore that side. Just and because of once some meeting this guy at a house of blues... Probably, like, Lissa and I both have experience dealing with weirdos at bars and restaurants, like, regulars, because we were, you know, we worked in that business. (sighs) Don't remind me. weirdos (laughs) that come through that think they're your best friend, just imagine. It's like, thank goodness we never went home with anyone. Yeah. Because can you imagine anyone like Phil Spector? No. I just want to take a look back at this picture. This I cannot. So this, look at this, this mugshot, if anyone wants to look at it at home, just look up Phil Spector mugshot after being convicted of second degree murder and it will is be... Is he wearing purple? He's wearing blue. Oh, is it blue? It looks um, He, it just like, he is, there's nothing behind those eyes, but he's also staring into your soul. Raiders like, of the Lost Ark, it's I'm terrifying. telling you. It's really scary. Maybe don't look at this. It's Why don't haunting. you go watch the Indiana Jones movie? No, you have, to, no, you have to look at it because um, it really like paints a picture of like just how crazy this man was. Like, Look at any of his trial pictures because all of them, like, he just... Like, you can tell he's just radiating chaos. Yeah. Well, now I'm just thinking of poor Ronnie who had... I know. One, I want to be like... Like how, any of the how did women you get married? How did you get him? married? Can we look at like a younger picture of him? Oh yeah, because like Ronnie is beautiful. Women are smart, but some like why do ugly men end up with beautiful women? 
Uh, that's like a whole new podcast. Game. I know. I know. But my goodness. Yeah. Just like having that peer over at you yeah. in your glass gold I, coffin. He wasn't even like. Absolutely not. He, he kind of looked like a little. Um, there was a period of time where that? he took Paul care McCartney? of him. Yeah. He looks kind of like Paul McCartney in this He picture. definitely took care of himself for a period of time. Just for a little. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, he's just kind of like this normal looking dude, but he's got he nothing behind crazy, those little crazy yeah. eyes. Crazy eyes. Crazy and eyes never leave you. Unfortunately, he had a hand in many of the beloved tunes that we still listen to today. Mm-hmm. Do you know how hype River Deep Mountain High gets me? I like, know, I am I upset that he's even a little bit involved in that because that song is so magical. I know. <laughs> and honestly, Ike and Tina Turner, also a tragic story. We should get into that at yeah, some point. We'll, because we probably will. But that song is so fucking good, dude. It's so good. I know. Yeah. Crazy so eyes. Here we realize, are. Realize. 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 <laughs> That's what I just took away from all that. Guns fucking scare me. Men who are obsessed with guns also scare me. Short men with guns. Short men with guns. And wigs. And wigs. Mm-hmm. See, guns, wigs, and crazy eyes. And terrible crazy. combo. Terrible combo. But they anyway. run our industry. <laughs> Isn't that they great? really do. And yet we are reminded why we are so into crime and music. And oh, God. You know, this was good. I'm so happy that Me we too. started this. Fucking crushing it. And I can't too. wait for future craziness and episodes. As y'all will get to know, we, we like to clown, but... We're going to clown. This was a lot of fun. I was really scared. There's a lot of dates and names in there, and I can't read and talk at the same time. <laughs> I, think, I think we killed it. I love you. I love you most. Um, and thank you for listening. Yeah, <laughs> thank for you listening for listening to our little ramblings. <laughs> and we hope to see you yeah. next time. Fucking let's see you next time. If you like what you hear, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Tell us what you think on our Twitter or Instagram at Record Crimes Pod. Have a suggestion or something you want to hear on the podcast? Send us an email at recordcrimespod at gmail.com. Ooh.